know, I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm starting to coach like, you know, arguably the best player of all time. And, and it was that hero, like in the times I'd seen him before that zero indication of anything going on, like shipping wise. And in my mind, I'm like, there's no way I'm going to touch Tiger Woods a short game. It's like, if anything, this is just going to be an opportunity to, to learn from like one of the best short game artists of all time. Right. Super popular. I'm going to learn so much. And then all of a sudden, like the chipping stuff happened and it was like, what is going on? Right. And it was, it was stressful. It's like, geez, what is happening? And I just went deep, man. I mean, I just have so much footage of him cut up on my laptop from all the years when he was pitching a great. And, you know, I just felt like that really made me, that sort of situation really made me go extremely deep into understanding short game stuff. Welcome to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Corey Lumberg from Altus Performance, and this week we are very excited to share a recent conversation between what are, in my opinion, two of the best coaches in all of golf. Cam sits down to discuss all things high performance with Chris Como, and hopefully you've been tuning in to the Como Concepts on the Golf Channel the last few weeks. It's Chris's new show where he's bringing a very fresh perspective to golf instruction to the masses, one that is based on science and has been field tested with the best players in the world, including arguably the greatest player of all time, Tiger Woods. And from my time around Chris, I can tell you he is one of the most thoughtful and bright, not just coaches, but people that I have ever met. Uh, It's no surprise why he's been recognized as many times as he has as Golf Digest top 50 teacher, was the youngest member voted into Golf Magazine's top 100 teachers. And we always enjoy talking shop with other great coaches. And we love using the podcast as a platform to share their experience and what they've learned from being around the best players and coaches in the game. And it's especially the case for Chris as he's taken a really unique path to where he is early in his career Chris took a real interest in biomechanics, and that led him to not only learn as much as he could, but he actually went back to school to complete his master's in the subject. So his knowledge of how the body works and the science of how we should move when swinging a golf club is second to none. And that curiosity and and thirst for knowledge has continued as he always seeks out and surrounds himself with the smartest people in golf and sports science, other teachers, biomechanists, physicists, exercise and motor uh, learning experts and statisticians. And it's that devotion towards continuous improvement and learning that really aligns us with Chris. And we're really excited to share his story and as much wisdom as we could fit into one interview. So without further delay, enjoy episode 37 of the Earn Your Edge podcast with Cameron McCormick and Chris Como. Uh, How would you define your uh, growth in the game of golf and uh, how you became a golf coach? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I would say, you know, I've kind of come to realize that one of my primary motivators is curiosity. Just like I'm a curious person. And to golf specifically, I'm a first generation golfer. No one in my family played golf. Um, I grew up in Southern California, kind of, you know, playing hockey and skateboarding and surfing and stuff like that. Field hockey or ice hockey? Ice hockey. Uh, uh, Roller hockey. So, so Gretzky got traded to the Kings yeah. in whatever year that was. And there was a huge hockey boom out there. Not a lot of ice. So roller hockey kind of became a big thing. Like the mm-hmm. parking lots were just littered with people playing, playing hockey. I got caught up into that, uh, did that for a few years. And then eventually ice hockey, more ice became available. The cost went down a little bit because of it. And I got into ice hockey, mm-hmm. um, after that. But, you know, I, at some point when I was about, I don't know, 16 or so, 15 or so, a friend of mine's uncle took me golfing. And I just became like enamored with it. Why? Was it, was it a shot you hit in that first round? Was it figuring out small ball, small club, I, round surface to round surface, drive it a golf ball? The polarity between being able to hit a great shot yeah. and then not. Yeah. And just sort of like, how does that happen? Like, how do you hit a shot that's like so incredible? And then just one that's so awful, it just seemed kind of mystifying because you don't really have that sort of polarity in other sports oftentimes where like you feel like it's i mean obviously there's a lot of like kind of variance in like how you perform but golf is just the the repeatability part of it which is like what is this This is so interesting Mm -hmm. um and i've always kind of been like into sports whatever and it just as i I started to read a little bit about it and had this kind of like deep thinking component to it that just really kind of grabbed me and and that's was sort of the first part of of kind of my path in golf i felt like i'm going to expedite since I started somewhat late in the game, I'm going to expedite this process of getting better at golf by like reading everything I could find, 
which in hindsight was misguided, but like, it's not really the way to get better at golf, but mm-hmm. it seemed like it made sense at the time. Yeah. So I just started reading, knowledge nugget right there for the listeners. Yeah. <laughs> reading everything does not <laughs> equate to being better at golf. But, um, so, you know, I would go to Barnes and Nobles, just read all the golf books they had. I, I got a job at a, a driving range, um, Westlake Village Golf Course, picking up balls on the range. It's actually where a friend of mine, George Gankus, teaches out of now. And we became friends, you know, 20 plus years ago. But, uh, you know, I would read all these books and then I would save money and I would go get a lesson from a teacher and I would kind of go into the lesson with like trying to beat the guy to the punch of what he would recommend for my swing. <laughs> and very early on, I just became great, developed these great relationships with a lot of great teachers in Southern California. They kind of took me under their wing. Um, a guy named Roger Gunn, Chris Ambry, who's now the head coach at USC. And, Chris, yeah. and then um, that eventually evolved into a guy named Adam Schreiber, who taught Anthony Kim for years. And I would drive from LA to Palm Springs, you know, frequently to go watch him teach. And he was an early mentor of mine. And, um, you know, just got really just really into this whole kind of instruction world. I think early on, I knew that I wanted to be a coach. Really? Like how early? Because just a few minutes back, you talked about wanting to get better at the game. Yeah. And the game was the point of curiosity, the the polarity, as you said, between the great shots and the not so great shots. As I started kind of like reading and going to these teachers and playing competitively and having other people ask me to look at their swing, there was just, there was something about just sort of trying to figure it out and then being able to to use that that understanding to help other people that just really kind of I just really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean I, I also was trying to play competitively and you always have kind of dreams of like, oh, you know, maybe I could whatever play like, you know, on tour and stuff. You know, again in hindsight was just completely like like when you see how good these guys are, it's just it's not even close. But very early on I was I was um just really interested in in coaching and trying to cultivate that skill and you know, understand kind of what made the golf swing work, which yeah. is sort of a silly statement in hindsight again. But like at the time, that was a that was a big, you know, big sort of point of uh, motivation. Let's try and pull that thread working backwards. What sure. else were you really good at at school? What caught your attention at school? Yeah, I was. I always really enjoyed like kind of math and science and and logic in general. Just logic puzzles. I've always been the sort mm-hmm. of the guy who would do like little logic puzzles. So anything that was kind of a puzzle in nature mm-hmm. really grabbed me. It's like yeah. how do you sort of figure out how pieces fit together and and make something work or make sense. So learner's mindset. Um, Chris Zambri, one of your early mentors was quoted as saying that you, Chris Como, is not a player turned teacher. Yeah, you're a thinker turned teacher. And great coaches, we both know, never stop learning. I guess the question is, where did that learning mindset come from, the openness to try out new things? Like we've had conversations about diet and, and exercise, your own self-experimentation. Uh, you're the Tim Ferriss of uh, golf coaching, I guess we could even possibly say. That curiosity to explore elements that influence performance that were outside the box as you were coming up. Yeah. I mean, I think it's its own loop, right? Like I probably have that somewhat just in me, wherever that comes from, who knows. But then through that, you seek people who are like that and then they see that in you and then they help cultivate it. So a guy like Chris Ambry is one of those people where it's like, I mean, the first lesson I got with him was probably like 16 or 17 and he's just an analytical, smart guy, great player. And I just asked him like questions and he was like, oh, that's a good question. And then he would t- kind of take me under his wing and that just sort of evolved into its own sort of like threads and paths and mm-hmm. sort of like discovery. Roger Gunn the same way, Adam Schreiber the same way. So it's weird, right? Like I think there's an element of what the first cause is, I don't know, but like there's an element of it being in you and then and then it becomes its own loop. You you sort of, you know, may, not even consciously, but you sort of surround yourself with those type of people and it kind of keeps feeding and feeding and yeah, feeding. That makes a whole lot of sense for sure. What do you think Shribes saw in you? How would he explain what he saw in you to give you the opportunity to come to Dallas? Oh. Because you, you grew up in Southern California. Yeah. But eventually you landed in Dallas after traveling around the country. and Yeah. Yeah. I worked for, uh, so Adam actually got me a job working for Ledbetter in Bradenton mm. um, at the Junior Academy for a bit. And that was a great experience. I, I got to really kind of watch and study under guys uh, like Tim Sherry, great teacher, uh, Jonathan Yarwood, David Madras, a guy named Scott Bedker. Uh, they were all like just great influences early on. And then I went back to California and um, was working at a place called Wood Ranch Country Club, teaching there. And Adam had opened up an academy in Dallas called Performax at the time. And I just kind of kept bugging him. I really enjoyed the time that I had spent with him in, in, in California, in Palm Springs. And I was just like, man, if you ever have a chance, um, you know, I would love to work for you. I mean, I would just like wear him out. And 
you know, persistence can pay off sometimes. So, you know, Adam was, was nice enough to kind of bring me out here and help out with the academy. You know, some stuff happened with, uh, it was over at Castle Hills and didn't quite, you know, work out for the long run, but it was great to come out here and spend some more time with, with Adam. And, uh, just really was kind of like the start of me building some roots in Dallas. So let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners, Under Armour. It's Under Armour's mission to make all athletes better through passion, design, and the relentless pursuit of innovation. And that ethos or mission statement couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour. What does the process for you look like in taking on new information? and road testing its uh, durability or its effectiveness? Mm-hmm. You know, I think, if, if I'm understanding this correctly, you're, you're kind of always going in and out of this process of, air quotes, going with what you know with confidence, but then also being like sort of self-critical and kind of like refining that aspect of what you know. Is that kind of what you're... For sure. So to me, this is, is I think this is an interesting... I actually saw a thread on a forum somewhere that I thought was kind of interesting, but... It was somewhat to this theme, but it's, you know, when you're in front of a person, if, if I have a student, this is, this is what I can promise them. It's like, look, I'm doing my darnest to do as much due diligence, to learn as much stuff as possible and to think, think through things as quickly as possible to bring you kind of like the best strategy that I think is going to help you reach your goals. Mm-hmm. What happens behind the scene in the background of me sort of like refining my understanding and all this, it's, it's a constant evolution, but I'm going to, I'm going to take that and through my own sort of, you know, vetting, come to you with what I think is the best way to go about it. People oftentimes get stuck with thinking like, if I say something different than I said, like two years ago, you know, then it's like, I'm waffling or whatever. To me, it's like, if my iPhone, if I had an iPhone and I just like, whatever, bought the iPhone X, whatever it is, if it looked exactly the same as my iPhone eight, I'd be pissed off. (laughs) So to me, it's like, I, if I'm teaching exactly the same and I'm thinking about things exactly the same coaching wise a year from now than I am right now, it's like, I haven't learned, right? Like to me, that's, if anything, that's an indication of, of being stagnant, if that isn't evolving constantly. But having said that in a moment, you're going in it with like full confidence that you've done everything you can do from a due diligence perspective. And you are presenting things as best as you can at that moment. And I think it's kind of coming in and out of, of those two different mindsets that I have found my own kind of like coaching Zen, if you will. Yeah. Very interesting. A question I often times like to ask a fellow coach, whether it's coaching golf or any other sport or even business or life is what's changed over the last five or 10 years. But knowing that you're cut from the same cloth, I am that we're going to turn over as many stones as possible and become this inter or multidisciplinarian. Maybe a better question to ask is there are probably foundational elements to your, whether it's coaching style or coaching practice. What's stayed the same over the last five or 10 years for you? Hmm. I mean, it's always working the problem backwards, I think. It's like, what is the outcome you're trying to go for? Order of operations has stayed the same. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's just, to me, it's like, what is the person's goal? And I mean, everything I'm coaching is a very sort of goal-driven type of thing. And, and that can be different for a different person. For some people, it's just to have fun on the golf course. For some people, it's to win majors, whatever mm-hmm. it is. But I'm working working this process backwards from their goals. And then from there, it's you know kind of a function of like time allocation, just sort of the reality of, of life and all that. And then it's you know figuring out strategies to kind of help them reach that goals. And that mm-hmm. can be just so different for each individual. And so, I mean, foundational... If you want to call it, you know, what are the skills they're trying to develop? But even then, I think that can be too narrow. It's just like, what are their specific goals? For some people, it's just, hey, I want to play golf pain-free. Yeah. And the score is not as important. Yeah. So, if we define that goal, then it's like, okay, I'm going to do everything I can to help you reach that goal. Um, And I think that's, I know that's super, like, it's not very specific, but I mean... if I were to say what is truly foundational, it'd be that. And that that's how flexible I think, at least I want my coaching to be, which makes it almost like there isn't sort of this specific foundation, but it's just, here's a goal. How do I help you get there? And then I'm going to try to pull from as many tools and resources as possible to help that happen. Yeah. Very few people get the opportunity to take a lesson from a world-class coach like you. Can you give the audience out there a perspective on what that might look like, the mechanics of a session with you? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, again, first part would be like me really trying to see what's in front of me in terms of like the person, mm-hmm. like what are they after? 
So, I mean, early on, it's just very much like, okay, what are your, same thing. What are your goals? What's your time allocation? What can your body do? Just really try to understand the parameters of what we're working with. And then depending on all those, it can look really, really different. If I'm giving a lesson to someone at the club and, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, I'm going to go practice once a week, play golf once a week, I'm a 15 handicap and I want to get to whatever single digit. That type of lesson is going to look very different than I'm a junior golfer. I want to have a college scholarship and potentially play, you know, professionally when I'm done with school. So depending on those outcomes, it, it, the, the whole le- one, the individual lesson will obviously look different, but the whole lesson sort of strategy, the game plan that I'm like formulating in my mind, even if it's not formally put in front of them, what I'm kind of like playing out of my mind, sort of the chess game will look dramatically different. Runs a gamut, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Now a quick word from our friends at Titleist. How fast are the new Titleist TS medals? Faster than you think. You may think you are happy with what you have, but no matter what you are currently playing, you owe it to yourself to hit the new TS lineup. See what it feels like to swing a driver built with speed and every detail. You have nothing to lose, only distance to gain. Find your nearest Titleist fitting opportunity by visiting Titleist.com. And our friends at Titleist are also helping us celebrate our one-year anniversary that's coming up uh, next month. So stay tuned for details on a giveaway that we'll be running soon on Instagram. And now, back to the podcast. Going back to professional development, we had the question in my head and then I kind of reformatted it as I was thinking about it. If you were providing advice to Chris Gummo of 10 or even 15 years ago, what would that advice look like? Or another way to frame the question is advice to young coaches, those that are going to come to your open forum, which you can certainly promote and we'll talk about here at whatever length you want to. What advice would you give those rookie or younger coaches to uh, essentially cultivate the same skills and potentially even success that you have? This kind of overall philosophy I feel like has served me well and I see it in a lot of coaches that I think have done really well. Do your best to prove yourself wrong. So I think a lot of people are kind of looking for confirmation of what they're doing, which is great. Like, and I mean, I think, you know, yes, again, you go into your lesson with confidence that you can help the person, all that. But at the end of the day, behind the scenes, if you're trying to get better, like prove your idea, try to prove your ideas wrong, stress test things. If you have, you know, a belief system or kind of like an idea of what should happen in the golf swing, look for observation that sort of deviates from that. Because that's where you're going to really pull out true principles of what makes a swing work or, you know, any sort of system. I mean, to me, golf swings are just one of many systems, whether it be like, you know, economics or puzzles or whatever it is. So it's like, if you try to prove yourself wrong, that's where I think you're going to be able to kind of like peel away the layers of sort of like superficial for instances and get to true principles of what's going to make that work. So that's what I would encourage coaches to do. In running that process that you've ran for a good period of time now, how did you avoid that trap of confirmation bias? How did you always stay true to your BS detector being pointed towards, as you put it, stress testing your ideas? Did you utilize a brain trust? Did you have a crew around you that you could then bounce ideas off? Yes. Um, and I, I, I really tried to play devil's advocate with myself. So it's like, if I had an idea, I think this, then I, I would spend a lot of time looking at swings and saying, are there people or things I could find that don't do what I think is important that are still performing at a really high level? Because I mean, that's going to be the, the only objective measure is like, what is the ball doing? Is the person able to perform and compete at the, you know, achieve the goals that I, I think, you know, my idea is going to help you achieve. But then there's a guy who's doing the opposite, who's still achieving those goals. I just, I just really try to put a lot of effort and time into to finding those, those observations. So I think that was just something early on I, I felt like would be the process that would drive me to be better and better in my own understanding of things. And then also if I felt like there were people that did hold certain beliefs that were maybe deviant from that, I would seek them out and really try to do my best to understand their perspective. Did you ever feel like you overweighted too far in that direction and then you lost sight of a truth because of that? Like you played devil's advocate for too long? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that can be dangerous if you're not able to get in the moment and still coach a person with confidence and your ability to kind of help them. Mm-hmm. So this is where you're almost wearing two hats. You're wearing the hat of 
hey, I'm coaching you and it's you're dealing with incomplete information. You always are. And you're saying, you got to go. I'm going to help you get there. I'm going to do everything I can. And you do it with confidence and, and you can still kind of like pass it on to the person. But then behind the scenes, you can play a different role. And that is sort of the, the refining of your knowledge and, and understanding of things. So in that, with that hat on, I don't think you can be too sort of dis- self-critical and discerning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because that's just going to really sharpen your own sort of like understanding. The problem is, is when you get caught in between. If, if you go into the lesson and now you're like, oh, I've been reading all this stuff and you're kind of like, you know, you're not able to convey a message confidently and directly, yeah. like then, then that's going to get passed on the student. That's not good. But at some point you have to road test the durability of your ideas in a live fire situation, right? You do. And you go and you, and you got to like almost turn that off and then go into it with, Hey man, this is, and at the end of the day, like the reality of it is there's probably, there's multiple solutions to a goal. Like if a person is, Hey, for example, I'm a 10 handicap. I want to be a scratch golfer, whatever it is. Right. There's so many different paths for that person to get there. So whatever path you think is the best one at that moment in your sort of coaching, you know, like trajectory, you probably can get to that goal. So you've succeeded. So I don't think it's this binary, like you're right or you're wrong. There's just sort of trying to refine kind of the efficacy of what you do. And that's the behind the scenes being self-critical. But in the moment, like there's a gazillion paths you can choose and you probably have a good path. So go with it, you know? And if along the way you're making an update for whatever reason that you might want to call an audible or whatever, that's fine too, I think. Let's go to a setback question, kind of unpacking still the coaching side. Yeah. In a career filled with success, we can look at those things and say they define us, but probably more importantly, the setbacks, or we might even use the word failures, define us. Is there a famous failure in your career that you would say was foundational and it, it caused you to shift, change tact, pivot, or uh, maybe look in the mirror and become someone different because of it? Yeah. I mean, lots. <laughs> Gosh, I mean, those, those failures are amazing, aren't they? Um, mm-hmm. So it's crazy how you don't know what's around the corner too. It's so easy for us to get caught up in like, we think something's like bad or good yeah. and kind of our narrow sort of vision. And then, you know, five years down the road, you look back and you're like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, when I did move here to do the Academy with Adam, it didn't really work out. And it was kind of like, oh wow, I moved out to, to Dallas from California and you know, this, this thing didn't work out. And now what, um, I started teaching at, at Golden Bear Golf Center and it really kind of put me in an environment where it was like, Hey, you know, you're, you got to sort of build a book on your own. You're not under the umbrella of an academy and teaching at a driving range where you, know, you really have no reputation to precede you. The only thing about like being in the academy, I would say for teachers is, is, um, if you have a constant stream of people getting lessons, it can give you kind of like a false feedback on like how you're doing. Cause it's like, there's always someone behind them to kind of fill the void if they leave. Yeah. And it's easy to justify to yourself. Like, Oh, they weren't doing what I was saying, whatever, which I mean, it might've been true too, but um, I will say that there's something very raw about building a book at a driving range, mm-hmm. no reputation to precede you and just building kind of like a book through word of mouth. It's just like you either get people better or you're like not paying your bills. <laughs> right. For your staff. Yeah. It was and it was a wild experience and it was amazing. I would say that I would say out of all the stuff I've done, that was I mean, it's hard to kind of weight it, but that was definitely one of the most impactful windows in terms of really cultivating my own teaching skill. I mean, I would give lessons all day and then stay later and look at video of them at night and be like, what could I have done better? And it re- I feel like that really helped kind of cultivate my actual hands-on sort of teaching skill. Were there a set of strategies, one or two things that you did aided in building that reputation maybe uh, more rapidly than other people might? Um, you know, I think there's always a lot of good fortune with stuff. I had a junior that was playing really well and that kind of brought some people in. I was teaching Madonna at the time and he went from like, I don't know, an eight handicap to like scratch plus two. How does that so. come about? You just randomly show up at the range and you introduce yourself. I gave him a lesson when I was teaching at the this academy. Is Mike Madonna, by the way. Oh yeah. Sorry. Um, so I was, I, was, I, was, player. I was teaching at a, a driving range at the, I'm sorry. I was teaching at the Performax golf Academy mm-hmm. and he had gone a lesson there and I kind of gave him a lesson and then we lost touch and he sought me out and I was at that, that new driving range. You know, a guy like Madonna, he's just kind of like, you know, uh, obviously a known person in Dallas. So when he got better, that brought some more people 
And then that just gives you some opportunity to at least help people. Mm-hmm. And then when you do it, just, you know, you start to get, get to that point where um, you get like a tipping point of sorts. So. Right. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Let's try and go into your curiosity in science and weight that maybe against or with uh, craft teaching. And the, many of the conversations that we get involved in as you would go around and speak, or uh, maybe people would ask you a question about how you balance this depth of research and investigation in many of the scientific domains, uh, whether it's psychology or biomechanics that you're agreed in, or those that you're interested in, that you travel the world, um, spending time with resident experts, so to speak. How does that then get balanced against the craft, the actual task of teaching the player in front of you, um, using all that information? I mean, I, I think someone would never even know if they were to just watch a lesson. I mean, the way I look at it is oftentimes we're acting as translators. So, you know, the whole kind of start of me being interested in in biomechanics basically was like, hey, you know, we're swinging a golf club 100 plus miles an hour. It's hitting a golf ball 300 yards-ish. And seems like it makes sense to learn a little bit about physics. Mm-hmm. And then we're using our body to do it. So it seems like it makes sense to learn a little bit about the body. It wasn't like really more than that. It was like, hey, these are kind of like the fundamental ingredients that are going into like hitting a golf ball. Might as well learn about them. But that doesn't mean that's what gets to the student, right? So the analogy I would give is like we're translators of sorts. If I'm going to learn, if I'm going to translate Spanish to English, probably should know Spanish. <laughs> I probably should know English too, right? So I'm just trying to kind of bridge that gap a little bit. Students never get like, I mean, people get lessons from me. Sometimes they get this reputation of being like kind of technical, like nothing comes out in that fashion. It's just background stuff. So for me, you know, it's basically just learning as much about all this different stuff, putting in the bank, having it be there ready for who knows when, when you need to draw upon it, when you're trying to solve a problem and it's going to be helpful to kind of know this about the body or know this about physics or know this about like psychology. And then when that opportunity arises, you're ready for it. So I don't, you know, it's not really a premeditated thing. It's just sort of like filling up the bank account. And then when you need to make a withdrawal, you know, there's something in there. You know, another awesome adversity situation was um, like Tiger when he was doing the chipping stuff, right? It was like, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm starting to coach like, you know, arguably the best player of all time. And, and it was that hero, like in the times I'd seen him before that, zero indication of anything going on, like mm-hmm. chipping wise. And in my mind, I'm like, there's no way I'm going to touch Tiger Woods' short game. It's like, if anything, this is going to be an opportunity to, to learn from like one of the best short game artists of all time, right? Super pumped. I'm going to learn so much. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, like the chipping stuff happened. And it was like, what is going on? Right. And it was, it was stressful. It's like, geez, what is happening? And I just went deep, man. I mean, I just, I have so much footage of him cut up on my laptop from all the years when he was pitching a great. And, you know, I just felt like that really made me, that sort of situation really made me go extremely deep into understanding short game stuff, you know, way deeper than I thought I would ever really need to go. So it was, it was, you know, that's a great example of just kind of running down the rabbit hole. Yeah. By necessity as well. By necessity. I mean, necessity is the mother of all invention, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, it, it, you know, that's where I think having your back against the wall and a little bit of adversity is, it can be such a powerful and, and powerful thing and a blessing. Tiger Woods, how did it come about? I mean, that opportunity does not come about. You can't just stand at the driving range. Yeah. And one day Tiger Woods walks in, one greatest player of all time. Yeah. It just doesn't happen. Um, how did it come about for you? Yeah. Uh, Nona Begay and I, myself, have been friends for a while. Um, you know, he kind of followed a little bit of my career. And, um, you know, he just, he just thought that maybe there'd be kind of like a good chemistry, a good sort of connection. So he introduced us. We met one time, talked golf swing, just talked the game a bit, went, went well. And then we met another time, I don't know, a few weeks after that. And, um, you know, he just decided it was sort of a direction he wanted to go. And it was, you know, really the whole idea from early on was like, I, I thought that what he had done in 97 or 2000 or even before that, when he was a junior, was just like some of the best stuff that has ever existed in the game of golf. So for me, from day one, it was advocating, hey, look, how do you get to as close to that stuff 
um, in a way that your body can handle, like your current body can handle. And it was always, that was the project. And he's done a pretty good job of that. He has. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully we'll get to explore a little bit more of that, particularly your abilities for prediction, which we'll touch on here in just sure. a second. Before I get there on your TV show, by the way, I, I can't believe I'm remiss in congratulating you. It aired oh. last night, Como Concept. So tune in everyone. Monday's 7 p.m. Yep. Golf Channel. Yep. Fantastic. Yep. We'll discuss a little bit more of that in detail, hopefully here pretty soon. But you mentioned learning from the, some of the greatest minds in teaching, which we've touched on earlier, but also some of the greatest players of the game. And I'd like to explore that right here. Are there a couple of things that, that come to mind when I ask you the question, what did Tiger Woods teach you? Oh my gosh. Um, I mean, so much, right? Like, I mean, mm -hmm. I can't be more thankful um, for that experience and just him and the time around him. And just one, the way he thinks about the game on the course is unbelievable. A lot of the stuff that he feels and does around the greens, um, just some of the shots he hits, the way he practices is really, really interesting. You know, from it, so in the process, you know, we looked at a bunch of footage of him back in the day, say 2000 or whatever ish. And I have a lot of the swings from back then. Everybody does. You can YouTube or whatever. But I just have a whole library of things trying to dig it up from a variety of resources. So studying his motion in 2000, objectively, what's happening, I think is just a, a great exercise in and of itself. And it's definitely helped shape the way, you know, I look at, you know, high level swings, what makes them work and all that. But then to have him talk about what he felt and what he experienced was so powerful. So it was the combination of here's the objective motion. And then here is the guy talking about his experience of that motion. Mm -hmm. You know, the reality of it is in golf swing stuff, there's still a lot of things that are black boxes, right? Like we can, we got video so we can measure kind of the motion, you know, we're getting to the point where we have force plates and, and some of the stuff that some of the scientists are doing with measuring the forces on the club. So we can measure some of the forces that are acting on the body, some of the forces acting on the club, but the details of, you know, what each hand is doing on the club, that's a black box. We don't really know that exactly what muscles are firing to create that EMG studies aren't any good. And even if you had EMG stuff, that's not necessarily great. You're going to do with, you know, scratch golfer at best. You're not going to be putting electrodes all over a bunch of tour guys. Right. So to be able to be around a guy like Tiger, look at his swing objectively, and then hear what he was feeling in his body, what muscles are firing, things like that. It's like, whoa, all these things that are black boxes now all of a sudden get illuminated a bit. I mean, it was so powerful in terms of my own kind of ongoing quest to understand what makes swings really, really work. Has that informed your coaching from the standpoint of like change the way you you practice coaching? Yeah, for sure. For sure. In, in what way? Um, you ask specific questions that are for accused to investigate how someone's experiencing what it is that you're... Yeah. Yeah. So it's not so much... It's, it's not, it's not as, as simple as like, okay, we need to get the shell to do this, but it's also what's happening inside the shell to make it do that. Mm -hmm. And this is where I'll try to kind of elicit like you know, where, what muscles are you feeling? And, and I'm sure no, not everybody's going to fire the same muscles as Tiger or Jamie or Trevor or whatever, but to have some insight to what those great players have felt in terms of their body to create, a, you know, a motion mm -hmm. at least gives you something to kind of point you in a direction when you have a different person who's trying to get to those similar goals mm -hmm kind of guide them along Points that path. Of orientation. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. And, and again, it's like, I don't, you don't know for sure. Like, I mean, there's probably all sorts of different variations of muscles you can fire and all this, but it's some reference mm -hmm. of what high level players are doing with their body. That's outside the scope of what we're currently able to measure so that you can in turn now pass that on to collegiate player or any sort of avid golfer trying to reach a really, really high level. You mentioned Tiger's thought processes on the golf course and the way he practices. Are you saying that's in contrast to you work with uh, Jamie Lovebach, you work with Trevor Immelman, you work with Bryson DeChambeau, all unique individuals with their own special talents and, and gifts, you might call them. Are you saying that Tiger was in a league of his own in terms of the way he thought on the golf course and application to practice? Um, there's probably a lot of overlapping. Mm. 
But I mean, there's, you know, again, like I think oftentimes the gold is in that 1% difference type stuff. So, I mean, there, there's some things that he does that's pretty unique to him. Um, I don't feel like I should. <laughs> He's not willing to disclose them. <laughs> Maybe if I twist his arm. No, no, no we, won't, we won't get physical in here. Um, but yeah. Ouch, what are you doing? <laughs> um, you know, like, I mean, at that level, there's obviously a lot of overlap with those guys. Let's speak generally then. Yeah. It, what are the edge earners? What are the separating skills for the players that you see excel at the world level, which is called them collectively professionals, mm-hmm. versus the aspirant professionals, the players that you coach that are playing in college at UT or any other college for that matter, or the, the juniors at the, the come see you at Dallas National? I, I guess it's the question of good versus great versus world class. What are those separating skills or differentiators? Well, I, I think, okay, and this is going to be a little bit, um, I don't know, it's going to be a little bit hard to explain, but like, if you have the good stuff, okay, like just like whatever, golf swing that's just like this guy hits it awesome, he can control his ball, whatever, and maybe he's done this since he was day one, you can be in that that amazing kind of like play mode and just never give any regard to anything technique, purely like a skills development mindset. But, you know, if you're a whatever golfer, five handicap, I'm just using numbers, whatever, and you want to get to a plus four. Like you can probably be very skills focused and get really good. But if there's not a change in technique, you might hit a ceiling. You know, maybe you don't, but oftentimes I think people do hit a ceiling. Anytime someone has to make a, ch- they feel like from their own kind of cost benefit analysis that they're, analysis that they're going to make a change in their technique to help them reach their goals. It's so easy for people to get stuck in that. And these guys who have been able to make changes in their technique, and that's kind of been my experience with the people I've worked with, right? Jamie, you know, he had some injuries, did some swing stuff that didn't necessarily fit him. Not necessarily bad, but just didn't really fit him. We had to change some swing stuff. He played, you know, he played better. Tiger obviously has changed his swing a variety of times. These people who have gone in the world of, of some technique stuff and then come out the other side of him have played well. Arguably, Tiger could have never changed anything and it may have been the best thing for him, right? But I'm just saying, if someone does change their technique and then comes out the other side of it, it's their ability to turn that off. They do need to be able to freaking just turn it off and get inside the athleticism. It, to me, it's it, it, again, is like they're making deposits in their bank account. They're doing all the work on their swing stuff or whatever it is, and then they're just trusting it's in there and they're able to turn it off and just get very much in that play mode and then just trust that that it's going to be in there within your toolbox what's the one or two things that you would do to try and cultivate that in your junior or aspirant collegiate player oh, just just hitting as ma- if, if this is where if you you did make a change in swing you got to like stress test that so this is but i i find that people when they they're making a change and then and then it's not sticking it's like it's the unknown that that keeps it from sticking in there. And the unknown could be a weird lie or a weird wind or having to hit a certain shot and then they revert back to what's familiar. So in that process of making a swing change and trying to like have it be your own, you got to go out and find the weird, the weird lies, the weird winds, the weird shots, and then really sort of commit to the change you've made in this sort of like stressful environment of having kind of like unknown factors going mm-hmm. on. And then high, once high you variability. Yeah. It totally, I mean, it, exactly. I mean, it's, it's, it's and, and the variability is like really trying to find the weird, weird stuff. And if you can cross that abyss, then that to me is when a swing change really kind of becomes your own and you mm-hmm. can sort of take it in any environment. Yeah. January 26th. I tried to ask this before 2018. Oh yeah. You're on morning drive and you, I could quote you. You said, I think we're on the verge of seeing one of the greatest comebacks in sports history. This was an answer, like I said, morning drive as to Tiger in 2018 and beyond. And now we're 15 months on and your prediction proves true. What were the markers? Um, gave you confidence in making that prediction? Yeah, just I know the work he had done in the swing and um, he had just gone to like pretty good place. He's so smart and he's just got such a great understanding of like his body and the golf swing and all that. And the surgery that he had, the fusion, I just kind of knew that it was it was sort of the right thing that he needed to do. And I felt like we were going to see a stretch where he was going to be able to play healthy. And in my opinion, if 
if he's in the right ballpark with his golf game and his body's healthy to where he's not having to like stop and go, give him enough time. The guy's just going to, he's just going to beat you. Mm -hmm. Dream rises. (laughs) It just does. I mean, he's just, he's a remarkable, he's a remarkable golfer. He's a remarkable athlete. And to be able to come from the adversity that he's come from, he's a remarkable person. So I just really felt like if this guy can, can get some momentum, not have the stop and go knowing that he was in a good ballpark with his game and his swing and all that, that it was just really only a matter of time. There's a lot I know about you, but there's a lot I know I don't know about you. And there's some things I'm intrigued about the times you've posted on social, your hobbies outside of being a coach and, and one of them skating, I guess it brings to mind a question, an alter ego question. If you weren't a coach, what would you be? Would you be a pro skater? No, definitely not. <laughs> but you but, got some skills. No, I mean, come on. <laughs> maybe a little bit. Like, Humility, ladies and gentlemen. I'm really good at. I'm really good at falling. <laughs> learn how to fall. How else really do you well. learn? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Honestly, it's so funny because I, I teach a guy who, um, you know, he's he's learning how to skate as well. His son's like a big skateboarder. Um, his name is Dave Proctor. He's a really good friend of mine. And one of the things I always encourage him, like falling, is like important. You got to learn how to fall, man. Mm-hmm whether it be skateboarding or, or, you know, hitting, like if you're making a swing change, being okay with hitting a bad shot, you know, he's got to learn it. Falling's a huge skill. Yeah. <laughs> it reminds me of, um, uh, there is an old saying in the poker world. It was basically like in poker tournaments, if you're never getting it in bad, you're not getting it in enough. Meaning if, if you're ne- never getting caught bluffing, then your bluffing, pre- your bluffing frequencies are too low, <laughs> basically. <laughs> and that's another hobby of yours. Would that be the alter ego? You'd be a professional poker player challenging no, Danny no, Lebrano? No, it, it, it was a while ago. I played in the 2007 main event, which was kind of a fun experience. I qualified like online for 30 bucks or whatever. Poker's, it's an interesting game, right? It's all about like long run expectation, expected value. I think there's a lot of overlap to poker strategy and golf strategy in general. It's like, you know, you can't really judge an outcome as like an individual thing, but it's like, how does it work as part of an overall distribution? And that's basically what poker is. I've become really good friends with Mark Brody and like all the stuff he talks about is just, it's basically poker concepts. Um, Even if you look at like the payout structure on the PGA tour, it's super interesting, right? Like the difference between first place and 10th place is way bigger than, 10th place and 20th place payout wise. So the payout structure is not linear. It's got like this, this, um, sort of, you know, curve to it. And that can even dictate strategy. That's how poker tournaments are. Like, you know, the difference between first place and 10th place in a poker tournament is much bigger than 10th place and 20th place. And a poker tournament, you have what's called the bubble where it's, it's very binary. If you finish outside the bubble, you make no money. If you finish inside the bubble, you make some money. Same thing as the cut, right? So there's a lot of like overlapping strategies. Um, poker is a great game. You know, again, I just think it has a lot of like cool overlapping stuff to po- uh, to golf. Alter ego, I guess. What would you be? <laughs> um, I guess the right answer is I would not choose a path other than the path that I've already got. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, that's true, right? Like, I love what I do. With, I think it taps into so many different aspects that I'm just very curious and enjoy. You know, I've been around some, like, some people who are in the whole trading world, and that's an interesting world. Man, these are some smart dudes who do, like, quantitative trading on Wall Street. And uh, I don't think I'm smart enough to do that, but, man, it is that's impressive stuff. So I don't know if I would do that because I don't know if I have like the aptitude to do it, but it is, uh, if, if I were a fanboy of some profession, it'd probably either be those guys or like, you know, a theoretical physicist or something. You have experience watching people do things maybe the right way. We have just as many opportunities to pitch here, even professional players maybe doing things the wrong way. Going about this question in a little different tack than normal. What do you feel like, through your experience, people spend far too much time on? Hmm. In getting better at anything, may not even pertain to golf. Maybe applicable, but not specifically to golf. I think this depends on where they are on their own curve of like development. Yeah. I think if there's a gap from where they are to where they want to be, and it's a reasonable gap. There's some risk involved in getting to that new level. And they're just, you just is, and you got to take on that risk. 
which I think is going to involve getting outside your comfort zone and for lack of a better way to put it, experimenting a little bit, kind of like trying to figure out the unknowns. And it's so easy to just kind of like do what you're used to and just say, oh, I'm going to try and get a little bit better at this, a little bit better at that. And that's fine. But like if there's a gap again between where you are and where you want to be, a fairly big gap, I think the ability to take on risk and experiment is really important. But then the closer you are to where you want to be, the less you should take on that risk because there's a lot more downside. So to me, this is, it's not too different than the kind of the cost benefit analysis I'm doing with any player in what, what direction we're going to go with stuff. If you get a guy like say on the PGA tour and he's ranked a hundredth in the world and he's like, I want to be top 50 in the world. Awesome. Great goal. You know, and he's like, I, I don't like this about my swing or, you know, I hit a fade and I want to hit this or vice versa. And it's like, okay, cool. But man, you're only like, and this is the reality of it. You're not very far away from losing your tour card either. Mm -hmm. Like a quarter of a stroke either way. I'm sorry. A quarter of a stroke either way, maybe a half stroke either way. And, 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 and yes, a quarter stroke better is great. And you could be top 15 in the world, whatever. Quarter stroke the other way, like you could lose your job. Like there's tons of risk in that scenario. So you got to be very kind of prudent with the strategy you go about stuff. In my opinion, as non-invasive as possible. Now, if a guy is ranked 500th in the world and he's like, I want to play on the PGA Tour, hey, you can take on some more risk. Because the difference between being 600th in the world and 500th in the world, your life's going to be the same more or less. So you can potentially take on some more risk. So I think this is where... It just all depended upon where that person is in their own sort of trajectory of their development, how you should allocate your time. Should you be saying, hey, look, I'm staying pat because I kind of, you know, to tell me a guy like Jim Furyk should do anything other than what he's doing is sort of silly, right? Mm -hmm. But if a guy is, is, again, you know, fairly far away from his goals, but he's determined to get there, then it's like you probably need to experiment a little bit because you're trying to make up some ground. And in that in that scenario, it's probably okay to take on some more risk because the downside, you know, they're at, at the point that you're at right now, there really isn't that much downside. Speak about hard work in watching the best players you've coached or the players that you've been around. You've witnessed what hard work looks like to get to the top. Can you give the listeners a perspective on that hard work? Yeah, this is, I think this is kind of an interesting concept because I think people sometimes make the mistake of hard work being just a matter of like time spent. And I've been around guys who are very talented and very good and there'll be balls all day long. And it's very easy at, at a first glance to be like, oh, they work so hard, but it's kind of like they've always hit a ton of balls. They've always practiced a lot. This is like all they know. It's not really hard work. It's just kind of what they do. To me, hard work is, is, you know, really making the effort to identify what you need to do to get better at whatever it is you're trying to get better at. And then, and then doing the stuff that maybe you don't want to do. <laughs> and it's not really as much of a function of time spent. It's more of a function of just really being determined to, to say, Hey, look, I need to get better at this stuff. And I don't really want to get better at this stuff because not that you don't want to get better at it, but I don't enjoy getting better because it's not naturally kind of what I do or it's challenging or whatever. That to me is like true hard work. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the better people are at being able to sort of like really kind of have that awareness to identify that and then, and then allocate whatever time to those things that are relatively difficult for them, that probably has a pretty good predictor of, of sort of success or developing, you know, whatever skill. Building from that. Are there actions or activities that you would say people undervalue and should prioritize more either time resource or attentional resource on them to get more bang for their buck, more leverage towards their goal? Or is it so individual specific that it's hard to generalize? Yeah, I think it's, I, I'm having a hard time generalizing it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think it's so individual. I mean, I mean, there's instances where for you know an individual, it'd be like, you need to be way better at purposeful rest and recovery. Mm -hmm. Like I know guys who, you know, have played on tour and it, it's almost becomes like this psychological kind of blanket to just like put in crazy hours and it's, it's not to their benefit per se. And really the, you know, hard work for them is actually purposeful rest in a way <laughs> it drives them nuts, but yeah. it's like what they need to do. Yeah. Um, 
And then a totally different individual. It's like, dude, you're lazy. You got to start working hard. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's so, it's so relative to the person for sure. Coaching on tour. Very few people get to do it. The 29,000 PGA members or the just ballpark. It's 60,000 people around the world that might teach coach golf. Very few people get to do it. Can you give them a perspective on what that's like? The hours, the activities. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're kind of living out of a suitcase. So it's like the life is definitely not air quotes glamorous. Um, you know, for me, it's very much been rewarding in terms of the relationships you develop with the people. I've been fortunate that I've, I've worked with some really cool people, interesting people. Uh, Jamie Lovemark's like just one of the greatest people I've met. Trevor Inman's amazing. Bryson's a great guy. So interesting. And then Tiger is just, I mean, he's just Tiger. I mean, that was just a remarkable experience and he's a really great guy to be around too. You know, I think as a coach, you learn so much from those guys. So I just feel blessed to have had the opportunity to really just basically learn from them. I mean, you're obviously helping them out too, right? You're trying your best to at least. And, but just being around them and the insights to me, it's like, if you're like paying attention, you're a good listener and you're not dogmatic in your approach, how that cultivates your own skill set is, 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 is kind of really amazing. And it's been fortunate. So what do you need to see on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or even on a competitive day, Thursday through Sunday to take action to um, actually get the tools out and start to tinker? I tend to not try to like be too reactive even on those days. I mean, there is, it's again, like you're always doing this cost benefit analysis and the more sort of sketchy things are, I think the the better you feel about maybe jumping in there and, and kind of making some tweaks or whatever, but there's just so much day-to-day -day variance with the game. So I think you're just more than anything trying to kind of go through the process that you have both outlined as, is what's the appropriate kind of path for them. And then it's not until you start to get a bigger sample and really start to see trends in whatever direction that I think you start to augment that process or that plan. So I'm not really trying to kind of like jump around too much, regardless of how things look, you know, on those Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays. I mean, that's not to say that, you know, you're not making little things here and there, but they're still very much within the parameters of like a bigger plan that you guys have outlined. And I think really it's kind of like you start to develop your own language with a person and it just becomes, you know, uh, maybe a little bit of ooga booga booga, right? Like whatever kind of like <laughs> language you guys have developed and something like that. They're like, okay. And you can kind of, again, play with it, but it's very much within sort of the parameters of what you guys have already defined as part of a bigger plan. Bryson DeChambeau. Yeah. We've had him on the podcast. Yeah. An amazing conversation. Yeah. Amazing mind to try and get, well, yeah, to get inside, yeah. to listen to, to talk through, particularly the concepts that we would talk about in our circles and for the recreational golfer to be privy to any of those is, yeah. um, is fascinating and maybe a little bit um, sometimes confusing, but intriguing. Uh, speak to your relationship with Bryson and speak to, I guess, your penchant for investigation uh -huh. and curiosity and science and his desires as well. I mean, it's the, you're two peas in a pod, right? Yeah. Yeah. Bryson's great. Um, you know, he's got his uh, coach, Mike Shy, right. who's Mike's a fantastic guy. Mike's awesome. So smart. He's worked with them since he was whatever, like 13 or so. And, and they've built, uh, you know, obviously one of the best games in the world right now. And I've just developed a nice relationship with Bryson and Mike. And, you know, again, it's just sort of like that common sort of that commonality of, of curiosity and wanting to go down rabbit holes and just trying to figure stuff out. I've known Bryson for quite a while and we've always had really good conversations, pick a topic and we'll kind of like go down it and just sort of like have these musings and, and, and kind of like, you know, try to look at things outside the box, sort of rethink the problem, not accept a, a certain assumptions and be like, Oh, it's gotta be that way. So we've just really kind of, you know, shared that similar spirit. We have a, a lot of the same interests in terms of like repeatability, you know, where does certain shot distributions, what, what's correlated to that in terms of technique or whatever it is. And, you know, it's just been a, it's been a really fun kind of process and we've all sort of just put our heads together and we're, uh, we're basically trying to figure it out, I guess. If you had a blank canvas and you're, under no constraints, anatomy, psychology, what would you design in a golf swing? What would you design in a golfer? The question comes out of conversation that we had with Bryson about pushing up against end range of motion and finding an advantage 
yeah. in pushing up against in range of motion, a biomechanical advantage. And then, and then Bryson then led that conversation into neurological advantage as well. Yeah. It was fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think there's probably like, I th- to me, it's like, okay, if we're to look at the golf swing function stuff. It's like, you need to hit it whatever, you know, far enough and hitting it farther to a certain extent helps. <laughs> And then once you have that sort of prerequisite in place, it's all about sort of control. It's the repeatability part of it. And I think there's a couple of different buckets that, that can help sort of explain repeatability. And, and they're not mutually exclusive to each other. They can actually like kind of complement or just, you know, they're, they're all part of like the tapestry of what goes into it. You got the brain stuff. And then, you know, the things that Bryson probably mentioned was the end range of motion, kind of like hitting limits in your body. So you don't, don't ever overshoot certain points. Mm-hmm. And then there's some of the other stuff that we talk a bit about and that I've always kind of like been very curious and have done some research with ongoing is the whole uh, sensitivity to error stuff. Mm-hmm. So are there certain techniques that make, make you less sensitive to error saying, Hey, look, error is part of the deal. I think a lot of like the kind of the, the sort of paradigms that exist is like, how do you be more consistent you know, whether it be whatever um, technique people are advocating for, it could be, you know, keeping your left arm or whatever, or keeping your head, whatever it is. I mean, it's all over, it's been all over the place, right? But to me, those are all arguments for how do you be more consistent? And I would say, and not that that, that isn't part of it, but I would also say that part of it is how do you have a technique that actually makes the ball less sensitive to any inconsistency you may have? So like the rate of closure thing where people talk about rate of closure, that's, I think they're essentially trying to make that argument. They're basically saying, Hey, look, it's, it's less about, cause at the end of the day, the end game is not us trying to be consistent. It's making the ball consistent. So if you're moving the club head in a way, and I'm not saying this is the answer. This is just a hype. For instance, if you're moving the club face in a way where during an interval where impact could happen, it's, the face has less sort of variation to it. That ball could in theory be in different places in the arc from swing to swing to swing. This could be because you have a different lie or maybe you're hitting a shot into the wind, you slide on it more and you put the ball because of that, you put the ball farther back in your arc. Well, because of the way the club head is moving through space, you may be creating more similar impacts, even though for a longer time duration. Yeah. Even though you're having variability in terms of your overall motion, you know, there was this like, I've been kind of doing some stuff with, with Sasha McKenzie on this idea of like a 3D flat spot, which isn't actually a flat spot. It's just basically saying during an interval where impact could happen, is there a straight lining in the trajectory of the head that, again, makes you less sensitive to error? And this straight lining could be up, down, left, right. It has nothing to do with being flat to the horizon. It's just sort of um, um, a flattening of the arc, you know, in whatever direction it's going. So, you know, that's kind of... That's sort of the, the, one of the buckets of repeatability. And, and, you know, this is, I think what was the first part of it was about Bryson or. Yeah. Bryson and his conversation about end range of motion and yeah. neurological advantage, yeah. creating those competitive advantages. Yeah. I think it just comes back to that whole repeatability thing. And that's one bucket would be that end range of motion in terms of where repeatability comes from. And again, I think there's a couple of different buckets and probably the guys that have the most control of the ball, they're, they're, they're doing a lot of different things in that regard really well. And then out of that, you get a, a Ben Hogan or a Mo Norman or, you know, a tiger in his prime type of thing. Right. Right. Very good. Como concepts. What's the mission map for your TV show? Okay. So the mission map, you know, I've been fortunate enough to meet a lot of really cool people in the golf industry, like researchers, other teachers. And the big goal of it is to kind of almost give a little bit of a taster of, of some of these people. So each episode, has a different special guests. First episodes, Dr. Sasha McKenzie and a guy named Kevin Duffy, who's a trainer on tour. And it's, it's talking about some of the forces that are happening, forces and torques that are happening in the golf swing and how to train them in the gym. The second episode is with Dr. Stu McGill, who's, uh, kind of one of the world's sort of, uh, renowned spine experts. And it's about spine safety. And then a physical therapist, a trainer, a good friend of mine named Dan Hellman doing some stuff in the gym to help your, keep your back healthy. Third episode is Dr. Eric Henriksen, who's got a PhD in physics. He's a researcher at Ping. And it's just talking about some basic kind of ball flight laws, impact stuff, 
just kind of understanding different lies and moisture and things like that to reduce friction on the ball, whatever. And then uh, the fourth episode is Dr. Mike Duffy and Kevin Duffy again. And we're talking about footwork and ground reaction forces. Then the fifth episode, I start bringing in teachers, teachers who I feel like are great and have influenced me. And that episode is basically contrasting kind of what we would call like a restricted backswing versus sort of like a bigger backswing. Hmm. And not to say that one is better than the other because they both work great, but getting teachers, two teachers who are kind of like really good at teaching either one and showing sort of how each can fit and when they would best potentially fit an individual. So that episode has Ben Shear to do a test in the gym that can help you identify whether you should make a longer backswing or a shorter one. And then the teachers are Adam Schreiber and a guy named Lucas Wald. The sixth episode is George Gankis and Grant Waite. And it's talking about lower body motion on the downswing, whether you should have lateral motion or be more rotational. Same idea, kind of a compare and contrast. And not saying one is right or wrong, but what goes into each one respectively, each style respectively. And then uh, the seventh episode is all the teachers together, Schreiber, Lucas Wald, Grant Waite, and George, just talking about some transitional keys. And then the eighth episode is uh, with Trevor Immelman, just talking about some of the work we've done and then applying kind of these concepts with his own path and just sort of in general, trying to put it all together. Brilliant. Yeah. So it was really fun to kind of team up with these guys and try to put something different set of core competencies are required to deliver on tv isn't oh it? my gosh it's wild <laughs> yeah. wow it's yeah it wasn't easy and as we were talking before we hit the record button when the first series of my tv show aired yeah i watched almost the entire duration of the first episode and then none oh, since it's painful then. <laughs> it's painful yeah. yeah they sent me like one of the original versions basically just like you know is there anything in here that's just as bad that you don't want in there mm-hmm. and I, I did like a quick brush over with that and then once I kind of was like, just please don't show these things or whatever, I could not watch it anymore. So. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. We've done a great job, I think, of giving all the listeners some great insights into your experience as a person, as a coach, uh, as a practitioner above and beyond just being using your skills in the world of golf. Uh, one last query, though. Are there any misconceptions that we wanted to clear the air on that you wanted to clear the air on and use this as a as a medium for that? Um, you know, it's so hard. You get this sort of reputation of being like super technical or mm-hmm. whatever. And like, even this conversation, I'm sure probably will kind of perpetuate that a little bit. Cause it's, to me, it's, you compartmentalize it. It's like, you can talk deeply about the game. And I mean, it's one of the things that really pulled me towards it is that like, this is, this is, this game's a mystery, right? I, like it's one of the great mysteries of life. Like anybody's played the game. It's just, it's, it's amazing, right? There's just still, you know, like we've talked about, you're a learner, I'm a learner. And it's one of the things that I feel so blessed with is that I'm in a profession where I don't feel like I'm going to ever be able to stop learning about it, which is great. So I think you can go so deep conversationally with it and with research and just investigations. And that's one part of it. That's very different than when you're with someone and just coaching them. Like what we just talked about, I would never talk about in a lesson. <laughs> It's like, I don't even talk that much. It's just like, kind of like, what do you, it depends on the person, obviously, but what do you like, what do you need to do? Oh, let's tweak this, whatever it is. So I, th- I think that message is clear throughout the entirety of the episode. I don't think that someone listening to this, at least my hope is that someone listening to this won't leave with the impression that uh, you're a scientist first and coach second. They'll leave with the impression that you're a coach first. And the ways and means you go about achieving the end goal, which is pleasure and smile on faces and better shots and lower scores, means that you have a toolbox that's vast. It's yeah. deep. And you are the person that will not rest at being satisfied with the current state of your toolbox. You're going to carry a bigger toolbox next time I see you. Yeah. Because you're going to take on board new information from different sources and you're smart, you're intelligent, you're going to be the person that vets these ideas collectively for almost the entirety of um, the world coaching community. And that's something that we haven't, haven't touched on. So your influence granted probably in some way altruistically recognizing that you like to do that, but also paying some level of responsible debt because we are who we are because of those that have 
forged a path before us. There are many coaches that have uh, shown you the way, whether it's given you nuggets of wisdom or said, this is what you need to grow your, you need to do to grow your business. I think the entirety of um, that message is clear that Chris Comey was a coach first and a curious, voracious researcher second mm. to try and improve the net effect that you might have for the person standing in front of you. Fair? Mm. I mean, I hope so. I mean, I, I think that's probably like if there's something I was a little bit like kind of self-conscious or insecure about, it is that because like I, it's like you go down these conversations like, oh, this is awesome. I love talking about like crazy, like whatever. But then it's like, yeah, it's again, it's that sort of compartmentalization <laughs> of like, but that's one thing, right? Like someone can go read a whatever, go read some book, some science book, but it doesn't mean you can't like go hit a golf ball the next day, right? So, exactly. so I mean, yes, because at the end of the day, that is sort of like helping people and like with their goals and just using sort of like golf as an impetus for like their own kind of like health and wellness. That's, that's a passion of mine. Mm -hmm. And I really, really enjoy that. And that's just, that's different than sort of the intellectual side. That's more of the emotional kind of connected kind of how do you help another person along their own path yeah. side of it. Um, but yeah, that's, I think that's probably one of my own insecurities is that you get kind of like, you know, put into that sort of stereotype of like, yeah, just being just a science person. <laughs> right, right. You don't need to carry that insecurity anymore. All right, cool. Shut <laughs> it. <laughs> you, you, can, you can leave it at the door. <laughs> yeah. Last question. Where can people learn more about you? Clearly, we know Golf Channel. Where can people learn more about you? I try to like hide. I'm a you recluse. <laughs> <laughs> if you can find me, good for you. No, I, um, I don't know. I think I have a website somewhere. <laughs> okay. Perfect. Well, <laughs> Instagram. I'm trying to do a little bit of the Instagram stuff. There we go. Chris Como Golf. Fantastic. Chris Como Golf on Instagram. Any uh, call to action that you want to end with? Imagine you're speaking to a 13 to 15 year old athlete out there who wants to wants to be good. I mean, partner up with someone, find, find someone, a coach who's non-dogmatic, who's like willing to be just basically someone in your corner for your career. Um, I really believe that the era of the hot tour coach that people jump to once they get on tours over to me, there's so many great teachers out there that are educated and are passionate about the game that I think we're going to see a lot more relationships, kind of like what you have with Jordan, where it's over the course of like their career. And the reality of it is, is there's going to be upticks and downticks. There's going to be twists and turns. Find a person that you trust, you know, is, is doing their own due diligence and just stick it out with them <laughs> because that information that they're building about you, even if you are in a downtick and it's easy to be like, Oh, I got to go like to someone else, whatever. Like, no, they, they, if you have that sort of partnership kind of pitch out of the jam with them because mm -hmm. that information is so powerful. And, and to me, that's where, you know, through a coaching relationship, you're really gonna be able to get the most out of, you know, just giving another individual time to be able to understand you and, and just ways to kind of help you through all the kind of crazy turns that life brings you. Brilliant advice to finish with. Chris, Tom, thank you enough. Thank you. Been great. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge.